Mindfulness is a term that has started to gain a lot of attention in recent years. Something that has been practiced for thousands of years through Buddhism and other cultures has now been advanced through apps like Calm, Headspace, Waking Up and many more. But why do we need to be mindful at all? How does it help our minds navigate the crazy pace of life and get the space that we so desperately seek? To find out, we sat down with Lisa Forrest, Olympian and Commonwealth Games champion. She talks through how she began to realise the power the mind had when it came to sport, her own experience of better understanding the mind-body relationship, and what mindfulness has done for the way that she lives. From the team at Helix, I'm Tim Mullen. This is the science of us. A podcast about who we are, how we behave, and why. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Helix. www.helix.com At Helix, we help you understand your people, track progress, and stay connected. Check out the website to learn more. I wanted to welcome Lisa. So you've probably seen in the, um, I guess, the brief bio, very, very accomplished uh, individual. And we'll get into that in a little bit more detail. Um, But, you know, a former Olympian, Commonwealth Games and media personality amongst many other things, uh, but also leading into her practice on mindfulness, which is, I guess, one of the key reasons that we wanted to bring her in today um, and have a chat. So welcome, Lisa. Thank you, Tim. Um, now, I want to start with the background on you. Yep. We'll go right back to the beginning. Yep. How did the journey begin for you? Uh, so I grew up on the northern beaches of Sydney. Um, my brother wanted a fiberglass surfboard when uh, he was about seven, I guess. Um, but my, cause we rode foam cool light sort of surfboards in the flags, but um, my dad was a, a board rider. So Greg wanted a fiberglass board and dad was an old Bondi lifesaver. So he said, you've got to be able to swim 400 meters before you can get a, a, bo- a fiberglass board. There were leg ropes weren't even around. That's how old I am um, <laughs> back then. So, and also dad surfed, he wanted him to be safe, you know? So uh, Greg started his campaign at the DY men's club. He went down to the club, you know, those rock pools on the, by the beach. That's where it started with our neighbours and um, he got his name in the Manly Daily in the results section, the local paper. And so being the older sister and, um, and I like swimming, I'd, you know, I'd, I'd learned to swim when I was about five in backyard pool with, you know, one of those um, swim clubs. So I followed him down the next week, but I was a really shy, kind of nervous little kid and everything my parents took me to, I cried. I just didn't, I balked all the time. So true to form, I sort of balked on the blocks at the DY ladies the following week. And, um, and, Oh, well, I mean, luckily, you know, they, were, they knew what to do with tears. So they put a, an older girl in the water in my lane just in front of me. And she gave me a big grin and said, come on, sweetheart, you can do this. And um, the gun went off and I threw myself in. And, and when I came up from my belly flop, you know, I was sort of doing an overarm head out of water freestyle. And she was there and she was like, come on, sweetheart, you can do this. And back walked backwards all the way down the lane to the line to the 25 meter line. And of course, once I was there, I was like, oh, I'll do this again. <laughs> so um, the rule of the club was that I could swim. I had to swim three club races before I could enter a championship race. And we'd entered late in the season or started late in the season. So the first championship race I could enter was the under eight 25 meters of butterfly. And um, so I had this book called Swimming the Shane Gould Way. This is 1972. Shane Gould was the hero. She was about to go to the Munich Olympics. Um, and she was expected to win five individual gold medals, like not just relays, like she was so great. Um, And so in this book, her father had written it, um, all the different strokes, how she'd learned to swim in Fiji. And so there were black and white photographs. So every afternoon, my dad um, would come home. He worked on building sites. He'd take me down to DY pool. And I taught myself to swim butterfly from these black and white photos in the book. And um, I came second in that championship race. Um, but just by a whisker to a girl who'd been, you know, a swimmer there since she was five. So for me to come from nowhere and nearly beat one of the, you know, club stalwarts, I knew I'd done something special. And then people were telling me how I could, you know, go and just stroke correction classes in the winter and learn to put my face in the water. And so I was like, yes, yes, yes. And, and that was it. And the, uh, 72, that was 1972. Those girls went to Munich. Um, they saved Australia's sporting pride. We won a total of eight gold medals and the girls in the pool won five. So Shane won three, Gail Neal won one and, and Bev Whitfield. And then Gail Neal, she won the 400 IM, came to my primary school a couple of weeks later. 
and with the gold medal. She'd broken her best time by six seconds. I was reading about these girls in the, in the Sun newspaper every afternoon. I'm like, this Olympic pool, it's magical. And so she arrived and I went home to my dad and I said, uh, it'd be pretty cool to go to the Olympics, wouldn't it? And he laughed at me like it was about as, you know, like going to the moon sort of thing. And then he realized I was a bit stung by his, um, you know, response. And so, uh, so he sort of turned around and, and he looked at me and he said, yeah, love, it'd be pretty cool. And so I made the calculation. You know, I was eight in 1972, I'd be 12 in 76 and 16 in, in 1980. And back then it was the amateur days. You swam at high school. That's Shane was 15. The other girls were 17. And then you got on with life. So I aimed for 1980 and it would be between school certificate, as you did then, and then the high school certificate. So it wouldn't interrupt my schooling. Mum was really keen on that. So it happened really fast. I won my first Ringa championship at nine and then my first state record at 10. And then I, my first national title at 12. And then at 13, um, a new coach came along. I'd won that first national title as a butterfly. And, and he just said, you're a backstroker. And he trained me to do backstroke. And a year later, I won two. When I was just over 14, I won two, the 100 and 200 backstroke at the trials. And I went to my first Commonwealth Games and won a silver medal. And so suddenly people were saying to me, well, next time you'll win gold. So four years later at the next Commonwealth Games. So my plans to finish after the Olympics were sort of extended two years. So went to the Olympics and then the Commonwealth Games, I did win 100 and 200 backstroke. And what year was that? 82. So Commonwealth Games when I ended, 82. Yeah. So I, I was 18. I went to college for a year after that in America, because that's sort of the way that you were able to kind of extend your career. But um, I didn't know, like I was mentally burnt out. And I, I mean, by then I had what I called trouble with my thinking, but um, nobody talked about anxiety back then. And so I just, it was just the wrong university. It was, they were the best team in the country. I didn't need to go to another high intensity place I needed somewhere that would be fun maybe closer to home like I should have gone to Hawaii like why not because I was you know I could have gone to any university in the world I was one of the best backstrokers in the world so so I had my choice but I just was you know rushing and not knowing what to do and so I retired and didn't get to that next Olympic Games. Can I ask there's we talked about this beforehand the 80s Olympics where there was the slip that happened. Um, can you talk us through firstly, what happened for people that may not know about that, but I know it was quite a defining moment for you. So just so people can kind of get an understanding of where we go to next. Yeah. So yeah, that was it. So you win a silver medal at the, your first um, international meet and everyone, including yourself, suddenly your own expectations go, Ooh, <laughs> even though you're racing East Germans who are taking drugs, you're still like, Oh, well, <laughs> maybe I can be superhuman. Um, so, but nevertheless, like my times were up there. Um, uh, so, you know, fortunately, we also had a, a boycott of that games. The prime minister wanted us to stay away, wanted us to follow the Americans because the Soviets had invaded Afghanistan, um, that little country that's caused, you know, the world so much um, grief and the Afghans, poor things. Um, but yeah, so um, so there was, I was named captain of that team in the March we trialed. Um, I was swimming great, 100 and 200 backstroke I won. I also won the 200 and 400 IM. So I was just like on fire at that meet. Um, I just turned 16, named captain of the team. So you're talking to the media, how will you, not why should, not how will you go, but why should you go? Why should you defy the government? The government is saying, don't go. We're fighting the communists. You know, why should you go and, um, you know, fulfill your little dream when the world's got this bigger fight on their hands? You know, you could swap communists for terrorists back then. They were, the, they were, the, they were coming to change our way of life. Um, and we just, you know, believed in the Olympics and that it was a place where, yeah, you could meet a communist and actually go, oh, wow, another human being. He's handsome. <laughs> you know, those human things. Um, so who knows? It was that kind of pressure. But then I was also one of the, you know, I was up there for a medal in the 200 back. But unfortunately, yeah, got into the ready room. I mean, it was really also the ready room beforehand that then led to this mindfulness thing all these years later. And this thought in my head, which I'd never heard before, but it was clear as a bell. I don't know how to do this. And I fought this thought in my head and finally kind of got myself together and got out on the deck and got a plan um, to uh, the way to get there. But then got to the um, lane, into the, into the pool. I was lane three. So I was the third fastest qualifier that night. And on these yellow touch pads, Omega touch pads that we'd used a million times before, back then there were no blocks for the backstroke. So it was just your feet on the wall. And there were these white patches. And that afternoon, um, Mark Tonelli had come to me. Everyone was talking about how slippery the blocks were for the backstrokers. And he'd offered me a spray, a sticky spray that he's seen the physios use that I could spray on my feet and I wouldn't slip. I'd stick to the plastic Omega pads. 
but I was writing in my journal about confidence and how you needed confidence to win a medal. And I thought, if I accept this, this spray, aren't I saying, you know, I'm not confident. And I didn't want to admit that. And also like, what if I sprayed too much on? I might stick, you know, never get off the wall. <laughs> so I said, no. And of course I get into the, the race. And so there's these white patches in the middle of this yellow um, touchpad and they're like headlights. Um, and suddenly I'm thinking again of all the things I should, should I have used the sticky stuff? You know, the starter said, I put my feet in, didn't know whether they'd be slipperier in the white patches, all the thoughts that are going through your head. Um, he said, take your mark. I pulled up. And as soon as I pulled, you know how backstroke starts. And as soon as I pulled up, I knew my pitch was wrong and I'd started to move before the gun went, but he didn't see that you could full start back then. So the gun went and, you know, I just continued that trajectory, like down the wall rather than out. So gave the best swimmers in the world a couple of body lengths because you know what's a challenge after all <laughs> um and just took off and um you know really just thought wow you don't I, there is a race plan with a 200 you should you don't need to go out too fast you know but when you've given them such a big start I just thought I didn't have the right to settle into my race I just had to go after them and hope for the best so I got to fourth at the third turn but faded unfortunately and, and finished seventh but it's defining in the sense that yeah at that moment I was I mean it's you know, it's such an old fashioned thing to say, oh, you learn from the most moments. Like that was the worst moment in my life. I was so embarrassed. I'd let my country down. I'd let my family down. You know, the hours that my dad had spent getting up at four in the morning. I called mom back at home after the race and they'd listened to Norman May call it at three in the morning. And she said her first words were, what happened? Norman May said you weren't concentrating because the little plan that I had when I got myself into a mess in the ready room was to go out and wave to the people in the crowd that when I looked at them and they would help me feel better. So Norman May had told them that I was waving to everybody in the crowd and not concentrating. I thought, fancy telling my father, I'd gone all the way to the Olympic games and not concentrated, you know? So, so it was this, um, this incredible moment. And yet at the same time, as everyone said, you've just made the final at the Olympic games. It's the biggest thing that will happen to you. So the worst moment and your best moment in one, and I had to uh, just over the years, I just worked, you know, had to work out what that was about. And eventually I wrote a book based, my first novel, um, a teenage novel called Making the Most of It. I used the slip. So Nina is a, is a professional swimmer because by then we were heading into the 2000 games. Like what if you're the best swimmer in the world? You've got contracts riding on that moment and she slips. So that's, I wrote a story about a girl who slips and wasn't the good girl that I was. I caught up on school. I finished in the top 10% in the state, HSC, came back, did my... Uh, got my gold medals then two years later and so I wrote a book about the girl who didn't behave well because I always wondered would I have got to those next Olympic games you know when you face your fears and also the East Germans because the Americans boycotted in 80 the East Germans didn't go in 84 so it's not easy to win an Olympic gold medal but you know if the drug takers aren't there it's just a little bit easier <laughs> so and then over the years it's just now I just call it the slip that keeps on giving because that book sell sold really well and I'd get letters from teenagers saying, whenever I was low, I dipped into that book. And even now I'll go and talk about it. And someone will come to me and say, wow, I've, I've given up on something, but I realized it was just a setback. Or I'll get a letter from a teenager and they'll say, I listened to you talk and you've encouraged me to be, just be myself. Like, if you told me that when I was 16, you won't win a gold medal today. But when you're 57, you'll get a letter from a teenager saying, you've encouraged them to be your, be themselves. Like, I think I might have taken that swap. So you don't know that at the moment. You say it's the worst experience, but you just don't know how it's going to play out. Long answer. Sorry for no, that. Good. No, no, no. Very good. Um, and I wanted to come back. So you mentioned a couple of things during what you were sort of saying with the background. Um, but I wanted to get a sense of when your earliest moment was, when you had that recognition of the power between mind and body. You sort of mentioned, you know, the first sort of race at DY. You mentioned the voice in your head before. But what was that sort of when you started to realize, oh, wow, there's actually something going on here in the mind. The mind is a very powerful thing. Well, um, it was, a, you know, it's a process, isn't it? All these things, they kind of add up. So there was that moment, I don't know how to do this. And then by the time the Commonwealth Games came around, I, I in 81, I did my HSC and I, it was a deal with my mom. I cut back to four or five sessions a week, did my HSC and then went back into the pool. But that year in 82, um, I was just, caning myself with that thought in my head um, or with thinking. And I didn't know, I, I, it wasn't clear to me what the thinking was, but I knew that I was okay once I got to the water, once I got to the pool, I was fine, but the torture I was putting myself through and I didn't know what it was, but luckily Rocky three, 
came out about a month before the Commonwealth Games trials. And Rocky III, if you remember, is a story of the champ coming back, like Clubber T's in there, and Clubber Lang, I think he is, and he beats Rocky in the beginning and Mickey dies. And so, you know, Rocky doesn't know, Apollo Creed comes back in and he's going to help him train, but Rocky's just not there. And he's, of course, doubting himself. So I went into that thinking, oh, I love Rocky, I'll enjoy this. But it was so specific to what was happening to me because the girl who'd always come second was beating me. I was really struggling. I didn't know what it was. And all I knew was when I came out of that movie, like I'm weeping. I don't know if you remember the scene on the beach where Adrian confronts him and says, tell me what's going on. And he's like, I'm scared, okay, I'm scared. And she says, you know, Rocky, one day the crowds aren't going to be there. It's just going to be you and me. And I know that you can live with defeat, but you can't live with walking away from this. So I'm sitting in the theater, like weeping because my mother, I was struggling. Mum's saying, do you want to give it up? I'm like, no, no, I've got to go and do this thing. So I processed, now we would say in mindfulness terms, oh, there's all these emotions locked in the body. I called it trouble with my thinking. But of course, we've got this, what I didn't understand was generally we're thinking when we're trying to avoid what we're feeling. And I was stacking myself up with so many expectations. Mum and dad were, you know, still paying. For, I wasn't working after I'd finished my HSC. They're, they're working class people. They were supporting me, all the things. Um, so I knew that I just came out of that um, movie and I was in flow. I didn't know that's what it was called at the time later. Like, no doubt, Rocky showed me, of course I could win. I knew how to win. And so I had the feeling in my body of what it was like to win again. And I came second at the Commonwealth Games trials. And there was kind of a bit of a feeling of like, oh, you know, she's done. But she's there. And the, other, the you know, the girl who'd always come second was on her way up. I'm like, uh-uh-uh. <laughs> I just knew I was there. I was, I, I was getting better. I'd been better than I'd been all year. So how then to, how then to hold that? I didn't know how to do that. And it would take many, many years. And I wrote a, a book called, um, well, the, my last teenage novel was a fantasy novel set in the circus and I was doing it again. I was just doubting myself all the time. I, trouble with my thinking was back. So I thought, oh, I'll sign myself up to a life coaching course and I'll coach myself out of the funk. I, I just wasn't, I don't know. I just sort of thought I had friends who went to psychologists and you just seem to talk about yourself. I'd been once actually to a psychologist to, and he sent me home after, like after three sessions, he said, you don't need me. Like you've got it worked out. So I had to work it out. And then at the coaching course, they had, um, it was kind of the wrong thing in the sense that it was many, like just setting a goal. Like I knew how to set a goal and uh, I'd wanted to know how to be happy with the goals that I'd already kicked, if you like. Um, and so they offered this mindfulness-based stress, this one webinar on mindfulness-based stress reduction. I don't know what that is, but I'll join up. I still didn't understand what it was at the end, but I wrote down this name, John Kabat-Zinn thinking, oh, I wonder if he's got a book. So I went to Audible. He's like the grandfather of, it's kind of embarrassing to say that now. Um, and I picked up a book, the only one that wasn't a bridge called Adventures in Mindfulness. So I always started the morning with a walk, listening to a novel, because I'm teen, you know, a writer, but I thought, okay, I'll listen to this when I walk. And he did a basic breath, after a lot of chat, chapter three begins with this basic breath meditation. And even then he was like, you're supposed to sit. I'm like, I'm not sitting. I can walk. Thanks very much. And feel my breath. I don't need to sit still. I don't get what the sitting still is all about. And so we're walking along and he's saying, I'm walking and he's saying, so, okay, so we're feeling the breath. And uh, so you might be thinking, oh, this is good. Um, you know, I'm feeling the breath. And he said, well, that's great, but that's a thought. And the idea is to feel the breath. And so what we'll let that thought go and just come back to the feeling of the breath. And so I was walking up on like near, um, Oxford Street and you know Centennial Park it stopped me in my tracks like what I can let go of thought by coming back to the breath like why didn't I know this in 1980 when I was sitting in the ready room and that was it and what I mean once you learn eventually the MBSR his course that he created starts with two weeks of body scanning and it is brilliant the first foundation of mindfulness as per the Buddha was that mindfulness starts in the body breath and body so we start with breath is a body-based meditation but it starts with the body scan so literally feeling you know, your toes and then your ankle. And then I couldn't feel anything when I first did it. Oh my God, what's going on? Is there something wrong? I'll just come back to the breath. Clearly it doesn't matter, but it totally matters because everything happens in the body first. You know, we talk about it, you know, where words get stuck in our throat, you know, our chest caves in, our heart breaks, you know, we get butterflies in the tummy. It's all body. And all we need to do is just learn that everything passes. So if we just sit with the feeling, let it pass, don't feed it with thinking, then you can you can actually manage quite a lot of things within quite where well, you can glide through quite a lot of things if you just learn that basic technique and understanding that thoughts only just add to the inflamed feelings in the body. To, to get to that point, 
does it start with sort of the, you mentioned awareness before as well. And that's something that I think is quite interesting. So for me, you know, I've been on my own journey with this, with this whole area. And I feel like I was actually asleep for basically most of my life until probably I was early thirties and something happened and actually woke me up to what was going on more broadly. You know, you just bury it down, you exercise more, whatever it yeah. might be. But you talked about the awareness part there that you, you know, when you went to see a psychologist, they were saying, you know, you, you've got, you're aware. But I think a lot of people struggle with the awareness side of things in, you know, particularly now we have a lot of people who will sit at their desk and start to have heart palpitations or they feel like, you know, I even had um, someone I knew recently who had the ambulance called because they thought they were having a heart attack. It wasn't, it was actually all anxiety related. And um, so much of this is happening more and more and more. So how, how can people start that process of just trying to be more aware? Because I think we'll go a little bit deeper from what you mentioned before about the actual then practice of mindfulness itself. But how do we start with the awareness part? Uh, well, um, the, it starts like as you I, I have to oh, concede, if you like, that my, I was very lucky once I began this is that I've had an awareness practice since I was little in the sense that you know, I saw those girls swim in 72 and I knew I wanted to get better. And so you pay attention, right? If you want to get better, whatever it is, you pay attention to it. So, so I just thought that the traps I was getting myself into were faults of mine as opposed to, oh, just being human. And this is what I really love about, um, I mean, I teach MBSR, which is the mindfulness-based stress reduction course of John Kabat-Zinn's, but um, it, it has all of the, like, it doesn't, it's all based in the Buddhist teachings, but it doesn't mention Buddhism, if you like. But, but um, uh, I just lost my thread of thought then. But anyway, oh, we'll go back to anyway. So when it comes to awareness, oh, what I love about Buddhism, I was going to say, when you actually start doing that, is that it's this um, advanced common sense. Uh, how much can I be, how, am I, how, am I, how much of my stress am I responsible for and how much is just out there that I can't control and I have to let go? Um, and yet it's just so deeply forgiving, which sport is not. And I don't think as a society we're forgiving at all like you talk about a person who's got heart palpitations like is that person thinking oh well I'm just not tough enough or I've just got to keep going I just can't stop you know with and I I start that book by saying I was I was looking for I thought that I had achieved what I'd achieved because of the saying when the going gets tough the tough get going my coach had written it on the blackboard when I was you know 13 but in fact what I then realized was that actually I had those DY ladies early on that were actually just encouraging, come on, you can come through your fear. It's okay. So we've got a, a brain. Um, so we're talking about awareness. Let's come back to that. The beauty of feeling, getting to be just the sensations, if you like, of just sitting here in the chair, you know, and we can feel our feet on the floor and we can feel our bottom in the chair and we can feel, you know, the way that we're resting against the back of it and we can feel the clothing against our skin. And then there might be some air temperature and we hear sounds. That's awareness. So we, 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 um, you can get into some very fancy stuff about awareness. I've just come off a five day retreat and emptiness and it's got a whole lot of things, but the more that you can stay in the present moment with that awareness and just the body is always in the present moment. The breath is always in the present moment. You can't breathe for another moment. You can't, you can't be, in any other place but the present moment when you are aware of what's going on in the body and what your thoughts are because they the buddhists call thoughts a sixth sense we can't stop them they just come and go that's what we're meant to do we're a thinking animal and as it was said on the retreat which was a really nice thing we can be frustrated i called it trouble with my thinking but you know how many people how many of us know someone with alzheimer's or with dementia the last thing we want to lose is the mind that's probably our greatest fear that we might still be here and our mind is not working. So to be able to appreciate that and be aware of what it's thinking without being hijacked by it, that's a skill. And it's a skill that's trainable. It's train awareness is trainable. The, the pressure bit that you mentioned there, I think is so important because, and particularly when it relates to being in the moment as opposed to anything else, I feel like, I don't know if anyone else here agrees, but it's such a common practice for us to always think we have to be better. We have to be doing something else than what we're doing right now, because that's not enough. It always has to be something more and more and more. You've also talked about, you know, embracing the fact that you are human and that, you know, you are, you are flawed and that's uh, an okay thing, but how hard, what's your perspective in terms of how hard it is for people to actually embrace that and say, being in the moment is more than okay. It's actually amazing because it means that I'm achieving so much more. 
I'm not going to um, pretend that I'm some perfect person <laughs> who, who somehow can be or forget about being better or being more or trying to. It's one of the things I'm exploring at the moment is, um, you know, um, I'm menopause and uh, I read or I heard that the Japanese don't have menopause. They have what's called the second spring. So the women, yeah, so, and that's, you know, I'm sort of exploring that in terms of um, what that might mean. But um, so look, and funnily enough, I'm also helping my son or talking to my son a lot at the moment who wants to be good at basketball, but he's only started in the last year. So when everyone was locked down last year, he did his HSC. He thought he'd teach himself, suddenly became fascinated. He was always been an all or nothing kid with whatever it is he's interested in, bugs or dinosaurs or Warhammer or, you know, whatever it happened to be. Um, Muay Thai later on. And then, so he taught himself to slam dunk from an app <laughs> and thought he'd play basketball last year. So, like yeah, well, he would never been interested in sport until kind of 15 or anyway. Uh, he was very much identified as a nerd and loved science and that sort of stuff. Anyway, but uh, but he's just he's just really going hard when it comes to training. He's putting everything into it. And I've been thinking a lot about this in terms of, well, there's um, you know, there's a, there's a, we accept the fact that the more we practice, the better we get. Do we accept that? Like whatever it happens to be, the more we practice being in relationship with others, the better we get. The more we practice our work, the better we get. So. Is there any need to strive to be better? If we can just actually, and, and we will, what do they call that, you know, um, sort of practice that is actually, you know, the useful practice as opposed to just staying at the desk for hours and hours and hours. If we can actually be present to the practice, so staying aware and not being taken away by, what, you know, the many distractions. I mean, that little thing that we've got in our pockets is just, you know, killer for distraction. If we can actually practice being in the moment, being present in our practice, we will naturally get better because that's the way, that's the law of nature. And so why strive to become anything than what we are? We are going to get to where we want to go. And, um, you know, the Buddhist, a lot of our stress is caused by craving, craving, you know, craving, you know, the next coffee or <laughs> another glass of wine or whatever, but also craving to be, become so that, discipline really and the skill is to stay in the present trusting that we will get better if that's what our intention is yeah. and that's what because that's what practice does it helps us get better so so staying present to the practice and rather than letting go and also again it's the okay so I know this is in my mind but also it's a feeling in the body so where do we feel that craving or that tension to um like Dex at the moment just practice hours and hours and you know not schedule in that driving lesson that he's been <laughs> that we've paid for just like call up and organize the driving lesson no 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 I haven't got time and he meditates every day he read that last year um because it came out in April um and I think he felt sorry for mum because all of the you know the book events and everything can't were cancelled and so he read it and started meditating and he's got the app 10% happier because you know doesn't want mum to always be meditating with him um so he he knows he schedules in meditation 15 minutes a day and he doesn't think oh I won't I'll do it when I have time he knows that that's important so oh, and he and he values it and so he does it um but hasn't scheduled it so it's a it's a I went off on a tangent then but it's just that idea of um being present to what you're doing rather than striving because the striving in the end is a contraction in the body and when we're contracted the the stress hormones are released but when we can be open and inquiring oh what does the striving feel like does it actually help if we can hold it in curiosity and go actually it doesn't I'm not breathing properly when I strive I can't be in flow if I'm not breathing properly I can't be in flow if I'm not in the present moment concentrating um so that's, does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. I've gone around and around. No, no, it did. And maybe this is a good point to then go into the practice of mindfulness itself, because I know that we've talked about it as a company a fair bit. We had, you may come to the breathwork session. Yeah. A few people. So I think that often what can happen with this sort of stuff, and even if you jump straight to meditation is people say, I, I can't do it. I don't know how I can sit for like five, 10, 15, 20 minutes, you know, and it's this sort of thing that you aspire to. I mean, even myself, I would love to meditate every day. I do a mindfulness practice in the morning, but I don't fully meditate. Uh, and it's something that I've always wanted to get to. But I remember even when, you know, we've talked about it a fair bit, that even when you start the practice of mindfulness, it can start so granular and in a way that you wouldn't think 
is, oh, this is a mindfulness practice, but it actually is. Can you, can you tell me a little bit more about that and how people can actually adopt so many things that they're doing in their everyday lives and they are actual mindful practices? Well, we just talked about awareness, right? So the more that we can, whatever it is we're doing with our course, and really, I think it's, it's a Zen thing um, too, that everything is a mindfulness practice. If you're chopping wood, if you're, um, drinking your coffee and if you are present like essentially the basic skill is I'm going to I'm going to even if you're on the breath or if you're drinking your coffee or if you're chopping wood if you happen to chop wood I am going to be present to the sensations the thoughts the sounds the um, the taste the smell of whatever it is that I'm doing I'm going to stay in the sensory experience but my mind's going to wander because that's what minds do you know I've I've just come off a five-day retreat after five days, your mind can be very still and there could be quite lovely moments where there's no thinking, but it ha- doesn't, it takes a while for us to settle. So even the expectation that I'm meditating to stop my thinking is just going to get you in trouble because it's like putting a plexiglass, you know, um, sheet on the ocean and saying, don't make a wave. Like, so letting go of that. I mean, the other funny thing, isn't it? I often say at the beginning of my course, we wouldn't say sit at a piano and say, oh, tried it once, couldn't do it. You wouldn't get in the water and say, oh, I tried to swim, couldn't do it. <laughs> but we think, oh, mindfulness. Oh, I can't sit down. I can't sit down for five minutes and just concentrate on my breath. Couldn't do it once, won't do it again. So interesting. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So as long as you know the basic skill, which is stay with your sensory experience, the mind will wander. When you notice the mind has wander, wandered, come back to the breath, come back to the coffee, washing the dishes, folding the washing, whatever it happens to be being you know just actually talking on the phone to your client or even being present you know on the floor with the person who is interested in the stove rather than thinking about oh god the other person or there's another person over there like how can I be totally present with this person listen deeply that's a beautiful mindfulness practice listening oh what a gift it is to the other person to really listen then um with the actual um, formal practice so they're all informal practices and you can do anything informally anything that you do regularly like how many times do you drive and then wonder when you get to the place that you've to the destination how you got there (laughs) because your mind was so off on so many different things turn off the radio just be present to the feeling of my hands on the wheel the feeling of my body in the chair obviously everything that is going on around you you know I'm not saying I'm not saying close your eyes obviously (laughs) but you know what I mean like it's a mindfulness practice walking in the door when you first come in even just okay I know I'm going from a really stressful day and you know the kids are at home and they're going to be full on can I just walk and just feel my steps every single step as I walk to the door and just give myself those moments to transition from the busy day at work into the house where the kids are and if anyone you guys look too young so maybe we don't have kids but just to to be present with those just being present with your kids that's a beautiful awareness practice because that age is going to go like nothing is permanent you know so savor those moments so I think it's savoring everything in the present that starts that's the start and I eventually I sat down I was walk doing the walking awareness of breath while walking until I was at the pool like I always knew that I had this love-hate relationship with swimming in my retirement and so I'd get in the water it was always a relief I mean there's a story about um, meeting a Matisse um, painting called the uh, swimming pool over in the MoMA but that's another story but I knew that I'd love to get in the water after having a break I was always like oh I'm never going to leave this again it's such a beautiful thing and yet I don't know a month or two into it I'm hating it again and I didn't and I used to say oh I can just go for a run I don't think so I knew it was my thinking I just didn't know what it was and so I'd been practicing for about six weeks, walking while listening to this um, chapter three, beginning of chapter three every morning. And I caught myself at the lights on the way to um, the pool. So I swim at Sydney Uni in the winter and oh, it was, you know, whatever, September. Um, and the thoughts in my head were, so it was 5.30 in the morning or I was going to start at 5.30, 20 past five. And I'm um, sitting at the traffic lights there, Elizabeth and Redfin Street. And the thoughts in my head were, or I caught it at some point, um, so what are you going to do this morning? I suppose 10, 100s. I don't know. What are you going to do them on? Like, so repeat, you know, with how, how often will I repeat? I suppose the 140. Well, you've been doing 140 for a while. Like, shouldn't you be doing 135? Like, shouldn't you be getting a bit faster? Well, I'm a bit tired. And, you know, we were late last night. Everyone was over. I was watching. And I caught myself like berating myself about how slack I was before I even got in the water. Like, that's it. That's the thinking. 
that. And so I made this decision that I would not think or I would let go of thinking, which I knew how to do by then, until I got into the water. I'd feel the water on my skin. I would just enjoy gliding through water and then I would decide what to do. So that's, in a way, you, the motivation to sit, I think, happens when you go, oh, this is really powerful. This is very helpful. So I'm going to do a bit more of it. And then once you do sit, the other really nice thing, the second foundation of mindfulness is Vedana or feeling tones. Brilliant observation. You know, we have this um, brain that has evolved to get away from danger. We've got a negativity bias in the brain because that's how we've survived. You wouldn't be here today if your ancestors had not survived. right? Um, and so, but we're not in danger. Obviously, there are some people in our society that are, and I don't mean to dismiss that. But in a general life, most people are not physical danger every day. So it's our sense of self that is that we're protecting. So um, we have this these feeling tones is that we've got this um, inclination, totally normal, totally human, to move towards what's pleasant and away from what's unpleasant. So it's very handy to notice, oh, you know, the feeling, I don't feel like going to the gym this afternoon. I've had a hard day. I'm just going to sit on the couch. That's an unpleasant feeling. If we pay attention to that, we could actually then think, oh, yeah, but I feel really good. And probably that's what I feel really good after the gym. So I'll, I'll, I'll keep going. I'll go to the gym anyway. Likewise, when you meditate, if you can actually at the end of your meditation, even if it's one minute, if it's five minutes, just notice what it was like to just be present or even just notice the feeling of the sun on your skin when you walk outside. Like, Oh, that's pleasant. And the more that we can pay attention to pleasant, the more our nervous system is inclined to want to move toward it. So if you do actually sit for 15 minutes, think, oh, my mind was busy. Okay, there's a thought. Just let go of that. Okay, it was, it's quite interesting. Oh, sitting is quite calming. How does it play out in the rest of the day? If you pay attention to what is pleasant, mm. then we have a nervous system that will help us keep moving towards that. That's, what, that's how I use it. <laughs> Sounds amazing. Uh, I'd like to do that too. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask, and before I think when we were chatting about it, I was going to ask, you know, is mindfulness at risk of becoming a fad? But I think the probably the more pertinent question is, you know, why should it never become a fad? Because if you think about so much of what's going on right now, where it's getting a lot mindfulness, the whole, I guess, acknowledgement of anxiety, breath work, all this kind of stuff is getting so much more visibility than it ever has. But if you go back to it, you know, as you said, Buddhism, a lot of these things, it was always at the central point of how they operated. It's always been something that even successful people have been practicing for many, many years, but now all of a sudden it has the attention um, that it probably deserves. So how do you think we can prevent it from becoming another fad, like a diet or whatever it might be, where people say, oh, now there's something else. I'm going to take a pill for that, whatever it might be. How do you think we can get around that? Well, I think you can't, you don't try to control that at all, because that's the then you would be not practicing mindfulness. Um, I think also uh, we've been talking a lot about mindfulness and we haven't brought in compassion, which is a really important part of um, the mind, uh, what we're talking about, the mind-body connection. There was a beautiful quote that I heard on over the weekend. The mind creates the abyss and the heart bridges it. So, um, and I think that, look, there will always be people, it's like going, it's like, I worked on radio. I, was, I had my own show on radio in the 90s. And every week there was a new diet book. Like how many new diets are there? Now, maybe you're the sort of person that needs to go from one diet to the next. But I remember one day looking at this, you know, endemics, the huge sort of diet and health area. And I thought, wow, you could get rid of all of this, this whole section if you just stayed with eat when you're hungry, you know, um, basically eat what you feel like that, that makes you feel good. And, you know, essentially keep lots of colors on your plate and eat more veggies than, than meat. You know, like it's pretty simple, isn't it? The, the sort of the whole diet thing, but we need a fad. So there are going to be some people who practice mindfulness and move on to the next thing. I don't think you're going to find anything more helpful than mindfulness and compassion practice. So if that's the sort of, per if that's what you're doing, I if you're really paying attention and you want to actually live a life that is, I think, just make the most of your life by being present to each moment and, you know, connected to one another and, you know, just uh, in that sort of thing, I don't, I think you'll come back to it. If, even if you think it's a fad. So like the people like John Kabat-Zinn and stuff, they don't think that they don't worry about that kind of stuff. Oh, it's going to, yeah, that's good. It's good that people, there's more awareness. I think that there is a danger when it becomes, we've talked about this, like there is, there is a real danger in the corporate world. Of course, if people are using mindfulness um, to well, bring in a mindfulness person to, so that people don't, they can work more, you know, that your the stress is all, your stress is all your fault, which is never what 
never what we're saying with mindfulness. What we're saying is let's explore the stress that I can control. You can actually do something about. So my, what I call trouble with my thinking, I can learn how to let go of thoughts, feel what I'm feeling and release that and, you know, be in a calm place as opposed to, I can't control. Well, I can by my vote, whether my, the prime minister is going to use taxpayer fund money to, you know, build another coal plant. The only thing I can do about that is, say advocate or talk about it and vote a different way. So you've got to let go of the, know what you can let go of and take responsibility for what you can't. So there is a danger that when you separate, of course, mindfulness from the Buddhism stuff and you bring it into a corporate world and you tell people it's your fault, that your stress is, you know, your, your problem and not because of the workplace, it can't save a toxic workplace. But what it can do, I think also when people worry about that is that, well, what I teach when I teach mindfulness is that mindfulness is empowering I, I think mindfulness and compassion if I am paying attention to you know what I value and who I am as a human being and what I think is the right way to behave and the, the way that I want to be in the world then and I am being treated unfairly or someone near me is being treated unfairly then I am going to take action that to do what I can to alleviate that and I think that I think that it's a danger I think that's why it's not actually being taught in schools as much as it could be because, you know, if you start to teach people that you can regulate your emotions, you don't have to get stressed about everything. You can, you, you know, you, you do, you can manage, you can manage every, your every day. You can manage your everyday life. You can stand up for what you believe in. You can stand, stand um, firm in that which you are, as Kabir says, that's what mindfulness teaches us. And I think that, you know, you may bring it into a corporate space for one reason, but you might, what you might get is total, something totally different if you empower your employees. Um, I'm just conscious of time, but I wanted to uh, come back to maybe Glide because we have mentioned it a, a few times. Um, can you talk through what you do at Evermind now? I mean, I think it's probably pretty apparent, but what Evermind is and what Glide is about, because I think people are probably more interested to sort of say, we've got a few books to give away here today as well. Oh, thank you, Tim. Um, so Evermind is just a little business that I set up in order to... Um, uh, you know, it's a mindfulness-based coaching practice. So ever mindful, you know, ideally that's what we're trying to be. Uh, and Glide is really, so that's my sixth book. Um, and really it came about because I wanted to, once I started to get into this whole thing, it was really very clear to me um, where I had been. Oh, well, I wanted to use a mindfulness and compassion lens to look at back through my career. So because um, I went from swimming into uh, sports reporting and then I hosted television shows, radio shows. I lived in New York, went to acting schools. Um, I was in a Channel 10 series called Medivac um, in the late 90s. I was one of the actors and then I've written six books. So I knew when I had been at my best and when I had been what we would now call anxious, really like caught in my thinking mind in a really unhelpful way. And so, and, and the other thing, I mean, that was the sort of the first story in the book is that I was, I've always thought that I had achieved what I had because um, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And yet I knew that that toughness was making me brittle. And particularly in relation, it was my little boy was, um, you know, getting older and I wasn't handling it as well as I, him, I, I'd, I'd gone from just being so in love with being a mother to being angry all the time and brittle. And, and the last book had not, was just a mess. I made a mess of that. Anyway, so I thought, okay, so I signed up to the coaching course and, uh, you know, was introduced to mindfulness through this um, webinar. And then um, a person, a woman approached me about her teenager and whether I coach teenagers um, because um, after a history of anxiety and depression, the teenager was self-harming. And so they were with, you know, experts in that field. I had at time, that time I was early into my coaching practice and I hadn't coached teenagers. And so, you know, they were with the right people, but we started talking about how the anxiety had taken effect or taken hold. And it turns out that when um, her person, her um, young person was little, had um, entered into um, a race at school, won the race and got themselves all the way to the state championships into the final and then balked before the final and wouldn't race and in tears. And so she said to me, look, her husband and I thought, well, oh, well, it's one thing to be naturally talented, but another thing to be, have the, have the right temperament. And if you don't have the right temperament, you can't do anything about it. And so she's telling me this story and I walked away thinking, that, that's not correct. You can train temperament because I had been trained. I'd been the little person crying um, and, and the DY ladies 
had helped me through, which I learned that the, what they show that action, that active kindness, if you like, can do kindness is compassion. You know, there's, it's empathizing with the person at that moment, but understanding that, you know, that little girl's just fearful. She's not going to drown. We're going to put a person in the water with her and we're going to show her that she can get through those fears. Like these women were really capable. They'd set up the DY ladies in 1928, you know, through, gone through great depressions, through a war, like they were capable women. And so I then realized, remember, as I walked away, all the next couple of days, there were like five occasions between eight and 14 when I'd been in tears before, you know, my first race at the state championship, uh, first final. Um, oh, just any time I was about to step up and someone showed me kindness. No one was tough. No one told me I had to toughen up. They were just kind and they helped me out, walked out, walked beside me, held my hand, walked down to the pool deck, introduced me to someone that would be, you know, friendly. There was so much kindness there. And so I thought, oh, when the going gets tough, the tough get going was not the only way that you can manage stress. You can be kind. And I mean, there is this idea that I thought compassion was weakness, but of course it's not. It's, it's a motivation. It's not an emotion. And we it's often called compassion fatigue, but what the Buddhist or the experts would say is that it's empathy fatigue. So we can empathize and get caught in um, sort of drowning in the, 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 you know, the real distress that is in the world, or we can understand that, okay, that's there. And I feel that distress and I'm going to still going to set a boundary about how much I'm going to let myself, you know, get stuck in that. And I'm going to take wise action essentially. So it's, it's got an inner circle of empathy and an outer circle of courage and high action. And so compassion's a superpower. You know, if you can actually empathize with how you're feeling and say, come on, sweetheart, you can do this or come on champ or whatever it is, rather than what do we normally say? I don't be an idiot. You know, you can do this. Like, I don't know why you're just being so slack. Like, what is our self-talk? Is it usually, you know, just holding your hand and saying, come on, come on, mate, you can do this. It's okay. So I thought, oh, I'm going to write this book and say, hey, there's another way to do this. We don't have to be so tough on ourselves. Yeah. So that's what it's about. That's so good. I think um, we, we've talked a lot about it at the company, but I know with where we're trying to go is that, you know, if we can all just actually be kind and compassionate to one another, I mean, that's how you heal so many things in the world from, you know, we've talked about sustainability and a whole raft of other things as well. Um, I'm conscious of time. Does anybody have any questions they want to ask? Uh, we do have a few moments left before we go into that. Don't be shy. Mick, did you want to ask something? Yeah. <laughs> Not on Audible, no, I haven't um, haven't been asked to. Unfortunately, it just it didn't sell. It was it was just got, got lost in that moment. But so it's only available as an ebook, and but not on not Audible. Uh, on uh, Booktopia, yeah. Well, um, I, Amazon. If I should check if it's on Amazon, I, I know that it was going into like um, Booktopia would send it anywhere in the world last year, but this year it is going to go into those other territories. So it will be on Amazon at some point. But yeah. Yeah. No, sorry. So what happened was I skipped over that little bit. Oh, sorry. Um, I so my first state record when I was ten was a backstroke. Was backstroke. So the hundred backstroke, and then um, I went to. So I was uh, down at Collaroy at the Collaroy Forum with a lovely um, man called Mr. Reed. He was like a grandfather. This snowy-haired coach. And he was retiring. Um, so I started going to uh, nationals when I was 10, when I broke that state record. And it was his thing, you know, like, we need to um, sort of give us some experience in that competition. So I was always a backstroker. And I went to Carlisle, Forbes Carlisle, when he retired, because that's what Mr. Reed said, go there. That's where all the, you know, superstar, T coach Shane Gould and all that. And the pool was so busy. So Pimble and that day, back then, 25 meter pool. Sometimes we could only do 50s. There were so many people in the pool that the last person hadn't pushed off before the first person had finished. So, and that it was freestyle and butterfly was all that was done. So I won the um, 200 fly in the, um, he was, Forbes was determined that I would be a distance swimmer. Um, and so I won the 200 fly at those championships. And I think, but I won about I won a number of silver medals in a whole bunch of events, but my backstroke was just shocking. And so we'd spent the year traveling from the Northern beaches um, where we lived to Pimble and it kind of ruined us at, like family wise in terms, in terms of money, you know, it was just expensive and it was exhausting. Dad would get up at 10 to four in the morning, go and get some uh, other people in our 
carpool and pick me up at 10 past four and we'd be in the water at quarter to five. So it was grueling, you know, in year seven. So I, I stopped after those championships and thought, I don't know what I'm going to do. So then Forbes got the pool at Narrabeen. He, uh, the, what was called the Narrabeen Fitness Camp back then. There was a new 25 meter pool. He got the lease to that. And this young coach, Peter Lewis came in. So that was, I don't know, May of 1977. So I'm going to tr train you as a backstroker. So I was relieved, like 200 butterflies, not a choice. <laughs> Maybe Susie O'Neill loves a turn fly, but really like you wouldn't willingly do it. <laughs> Maybe um, if you didn't want to do anything else. So he said, you're going to do backstroke. And so that was fine with me. Yeah. <laughs> I hope people have, uh, have taken something away from it. So thank you so much for, for joining us. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, we've got some lunch happening now. So thank you. That's it for this episode of The Science of Us. If you'd like to learn more about Lisa Forrest or Evermind, check out the show notes. And if you enjoy what you heard, as always, give us a review or follow us wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Helix, www.helix.com. At Helix, we help you lead the room by reading the room. It's a simple and powerful listening tool that supports the mental well-being of your team, no matter where they are. We'll see you next time on The Science of Us.